0: For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Sped, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. On tonight's episode, we're welcoming a special guest as Dr. Stephen Loftus of Baltimore Sports and Life joins us to break down the upcoming 2021 MLB draft. Uh, In that discussion, we're going to take a little bit closer look at what the Orioles' draft strategy might look like And the players that they could be considering at number five. Um, In addition, Bob, Nick, and I will be doing our weekly segment in which we highlight a player outside of our top 30 prospect list that has impressed us of late. And that will give us an opportunity to uh, quickly recap some of the opening action from the Florida Coast League that took place on Monday. So that will be on tonight's episode. But first, On The Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor & Home Carpet 1. Mercer is a third-generation family business. It was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So as we do each show, typically at the end, but tonight we're going to do it at the beginning. Uh, We profile a player outside of our top 30 prospects list and talk about what they've done lately, whether it's been an impressive game, an impressive week, uh, and explain why we think they should be on your radar. So, Starting us off tonight, is going to be Nick.
3: Yeah, this one. Well, I got two. I'm going to cheat because uh, I have to mention the other one. But uh, I want to mention Christopher Cespedes, and he, he's not going to be a top 30 prospect anytime soon. I'll get that out of the way now. But over the last week, he did go five for 21, so only a 238 average. But he hit three home runs, and two of those were grand slams for Delmarva. Uh, so, you know, he's hitting 209 for the year, 34 strikeouts in 30 games. He's also, like, 23. I think he's about to turn 24 years old. So um, minor league phase, Rule 5 draft guy a couple years ago. Orioles drafted him for those high exit velocity numbers that he had. He's showing them off. Uh, he's having his moment. So shout out to Christopher Cespedes. Uh, and I also, real quickly, just want to highlight Zach Beek and Houston Roth. Houston Roth's the guy out of Ole Miss the Orioles drafted recently. Zach Peake, of course, part of the Dylan Bundy trade. Um, they Peake started twice this week against Fredericksburg, and Roth relieved him both times. And combined, they went 17 innings, allowed just two runs, walked three guys, and struck out 24. So uh, I was glad to watch those two starts, and uh, I'm declaring the Dylan Bundy trade a victory in the Orioles' favor.
2: Yeah, I w- would expect Peake to be making an appearance at Aberdeen before long, and then maybe – Roth can get that chance to just take his starting rotation spot. Maybe that's what they're doing there. But that was excellent to see.
1: Peak seems to be getting better and better as the season goes on, and his K-strut seems to be getting even better than it already was. So Zach Peek uh, certainly should be on your radar if he wasn't already. My pick for this week is Gene Pinto, who pitched in the Florida Complex League today and made his debut as an Oriole. He was one of the players that the Orioles acquired in the offseason as part of the Jose Iglesias trade. And in his outing on Monday, he went four innings, allowed two hits, one run, walked six or walked two, and struck out six. One thing to notice is that Pinto had not pitched in the United States in the United States League before today. His only professional experience was 12 innings pitched back in 2019 in the Dominican Summer League with the Angels. Uh, 20 years old, and according to StatCast data that's available over at Baseball Savant, Pinto did touch 94 today with his fastball. So he's been a guy that some fans may have heard of because of the Iglesias trade. But when we've talked about that deal, we've talked more about Garrett Stallings and what we think he can do. Pinto seemingly was a bit of a throw in at the time. But if today's outing is any indication, we should be paying closer attention to him.
3: Yeah, that was good to see. Fresh start. Young kid. A lot of swing and misses, too. He got a, a um, in that outing. So, I mean, those numbers down in the Florida Complex League now, not GCL anymore, uh, they are what they are. But, I mean, he's a young guy, and which, like you mentioned, he hasn't thrown since 2019. So, he's off to a good start. You got to feel good about that. I'm sure he feels great about that as well.
2: Yeah, Garrett Stallings too. It's all about Gene Pinto. Uh no, it's just good to see these guys get professional bats. And that ties into my my player who I picked who is Luis Gonzalez, the former Arizona Diamondback outfielder. Turned uh 19 or 18 year old. No, he played center field. He bet like third or fourth in the lineup for the FCL Orioles. And he went two for three with a double and a walk. I mean, this is a guy who the Orioles he was I think he was the highest paid of that vaunted first Michael Elias international draft signing class for uh, like 475,000. And he, he was put it all on display today. Obviously it's just the first game of the season, but just good to see these guys get out there, see these names and get familiar with them. And maybe even some will just uh, be names that we hadn't been eagerly awaiting and they'll, they'll dominate the headlines before long too. So just wanted to shout out Luis Gonzalez, Steven Acevedo and the rest of the, uh, international signings and Kobe Mayo who hit a ball almost 106 miles per hour uh, hit a double it's it's Mayo season get the Mayo jar out put a quarter in it I don't know what I'm talking about but uh just glad that the league has got started today
3: yeah I was glad to see that as well uh just looking at the rosters that we got this morning some pretty stacked outfield as far as name recognition goes a lot of guys we've been hearing about from Matt Blood and Kobe Perez guys they've talked about so it's good to finally at least get some box scores but my offer still stands if they need somebody to run a video. I'm, I'm willing to move.
1: Well, if we can see Luis Gonzalez in that video feed, that would be well worth it. Uh, he's certainly somebody that has you've been hearing more about leading up to the start of the Florida Complex League, and I think he showed a little bit of that today. So definitely interested to see what he does over the summer. So on that note, now we're going to turn our attention over to the draft, and this will be our final preview before the draft, which begins on July 11th. And joining us on tonight's show is Dr. Stephen Loftus. Uh, If you're a reader of Baltimore Sports and Life or you listen to the show regularly, you're familiar with Stephen's work. We always appreciate his insight. And um, Stephen, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Really excited. Two weeks before the draft. Things are starting to get fun now. (laughs) So we did want to mention at the top of the show that you have a new article over at Baltimore Sports and Life today where you updated your draft model. Can you give some of our listeners a background on the draft model and some of the changes you've just made to it?
0: Yeah, sure. So our said, the draft model is my version of, you know, what every team basically has. Some version of, you know, combining all the biographical details, college stats, outside rankings, thing I don't have is internal rankings, of course, and, you know, any other information that we have to a single score of some sort of form for uh, for the players. Now, in this case, so the thing that I led the article with, I'm a statistician, that's my training, that's what I um, education was in. And one thing that's drilled into us all the time is that all models are wrong. Every model, no matter how good is wrong, some are useful. So I'm constantly making changes to the model. So in the last month or so, I've completely overhauled a lot all sorts of things of how I adjust um, my college, the college stats, you know, for uh, quality of opponents, accounting for, you know, the fact that some guys might hit 400 in 20 plate appearances, and that doesn't mean as much, you know, adjusting all of these things, just lots of little adjustments. And there was a lot of movement, lots of players moved around moving up and down. And it's really interesting to see how some of these changes have turned out, you know, guys like, you know, th- things that we expect to see. Jack Leiter finally made his rise up from what was before like seventh of the mile. Now he's second overall, you know, a lot of things are now coming into line right before the draft hits, you know, in 13
1: days. So you were last on our show in April. And at that point in time, it seemed like it was the two Vanderbilt pitchers, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker were still kind of seen as the top options to go first overall to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh now we're closer to the drafts, but yet the mock drafts that are coming out seem to be all over the place, not just with the Orioles, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later on, but really with those top five teams and with those top five picks. Do things sometimes feel just as uncertain now as they did in April, uh when we were much earlier in the season? I mean, it, it does seem like there's more uncertainty. Like even if you extend it pa- out past
0: uh, Rocker and Leiter, you know, the top four seem pretty well set with the two of them, Lawler, Mayer, and Henry Davis kind of, he wasn't quite there as a solid fifth, but there seemed to be like four and a half solid spots there. Now you got a top three of, again, still Lighter, Lawler, and Mayer, but beyond that, no one's really sure on those last two who's routing out that top five. There, there seems to be a bit more coalescence around, you know, two of the other high school shortstop options with Khalil Watson really kind of uh, rising up there and Brady House. You know, you could argue if he's a shortstop, but that kind of group of four really starting to come into play for pretty much every team in the top four. It seems like Lighter's pretty well set there in that top five, but we're not really sure. Kumar Rocker, you know, now the range is anywhere between four and seven, it seems for him. Jackson, Job, you know, high school. No one knows where he's going to go. I've seen him as early as I think the highest I've seen him is fourth overall to the Tigers, which I would personally love to see that because that uh, opens up a lot of options for the Orioles. But yeah, it seems like there is a little less certainty now in a week's time. I think there will be a little bit. This is a weird year. There's a lot of options that teams could take at number one. There's not a clear top guy or even top two necessarily to choose from like, you know, when it was Rutschman and Witt. But because of that, there's so many options. I don't think we're going to really see clarity even up till the day of the draft. We might not hundred percent know where things are going to go.
3: Yeah. Um, To follow that up. I just thought about this though. Is It feels like this year, in your opinion, do you think that this year is more just weird compared to last year due to COVID? Uh, wiping out 2020 and that's what's causing a lot of this at the top of the draft, or is it just the talent level? Like there's not that clear one, one.
0: Um, I mean, there's, there's probably some of that in there. You know, we would have another full year of lighter with more pitch FX data. You'd have another year with rocker, same sort of thing. Henry Davis might've been able to establish a bit more of a track record, all that. But I do think it's because, The talent in this case this particular not that there's a lack of talent or anything there's just not this clear tier of you know top one top two or anything like that it's a lot more even of a uh, spread there at the top there's in a sense not as much drop off as you usually see from one two three five etc which works great for the orioles in that sense because we don't have those that top two pick sort of thing
3: so speaking about the orioles let's talk orioles specific now um Every mock draft seems to have someone different uh, coming in at, in at pick number five. Uh, is this because the draft class is just so volatile at, at this point or because do you think people are now just they – they're not sure on how to peg how Michael Lass is going to attack this draft?
0: A bit of both. I mean, I think people are really, you know, as upset as you can get about this stuff, upset that they missed the underslot last year so badly. And so I think there might be, even in some cases, maybe a little overstatement of how much underslot possibility there is. I do think there is some this year and this is a year where it could absolutely happen. But I think there's a little bit of an overstatement of it. That said, again, combined with the talent and the you know roughly even nature at the top, it seems like, uh, gives the opportunity for a lot of things to happen. It seems like most mock drafts, drafts are leaning Lawler and Mayor some form one and two. Lighter seems to be a popular uh, not Houston, Boston pick, but we're not really sure where Detroit's going because they have similar sort of thing. They're building from the ground up very, very much so. They have a lot of options that they could go. I mean, I have seen Henry Davis. I've seen Jackson Job, I've seen Khalil Watson. I've seen Brady House go to them. And when you have that many options right ahead of you, that's going to open up so many possibilities for the pick that's right after you because, you know, the Orioles would have interest in many of those same sort of guys. Uh, Maybe not Job. I don't necessarily see Elias going for a high school pitcher necessarily. That might be my own bias. These high school school pitchers are just such a a rough way to go on that end of things that I I would find it hard to think that the Orioles would go that route. But again, still, there's so many opportunities there, both at four for Detroit and five for the Orioles that – you're not going to really find a consensus at that point. It would be really, really hard to find. And again, I don't think we'll see any sort of consensus even on draft day.
2: Okay. So what do you make of a couple recent mock drafts? One is MLB pipelines latest with having the Orioles take Henry Davis at number five. And I know baseball America just came out with Khalil Watson going to them today. Uh, But back to Davis, does he even fall to that spot at number five? Do you think? And if so, would the Orioles pick him? I don't know if he falls. Cause
0: again, Detroit, there's just, doesn't seem to be, there seems to be Intel coming out of, you know, the Pittsburgh, Texas, uh, Boston sort of camps that seems to have a somewhat of a coalescing around those top three picks, but Detroit just is where things can just go awry real fast. So again, there's definitely a chance that Davis falls to the Orioles. Definitely could happen. Would they take him? And that's, that's a tough one because If you're the Orioles, if you're taking Davis, you're not seeing him as a full-time catcher. You're seeing him at best, you know, taking that fifth day, give Adley a break, you know, four or five years down the line. You're seeing him as a corner outfielder or a third baseman. And in that case, you really have to believe in the bat, especially once you get him out to the corner outfield. You really have to believe in the bat as something special that can play in the outfield. He absolutely can play those positions. He's not a you know complete plotter behind the plate or anything like that. He can he can move well enough and has enough athleticism that he should be able to handle those positions, you know, well enough. It, you know, decent chance that it's a tick below average or that sort of thing. But you have to really believe in the bat. And when he moves off of catcher, he really does lose a lot of value. It's a real big question at that point, because again, you have to really believe in the bat, first of all. And the fact that you're moving them off of the premium position now, granted, catcher I think is going to lose some of that premium once they go to the uh you know the automated strike zone, but it's still once you move them off that uh, premium position, you have to believe in the bat even more. I don't necessarily see the Orioles going for that. I think there are better options there at five, even if they take one of the players that I personally like better like Khalil Watson. I, I like Cleo Watson very much at five for the, for the Orioles. Um, and even if Detroit takes him, I still think there are better options there than Davis.
2: I tend to agree with you, but let's just say, all right, he falls to five. The Orioles believe in the bat. They draft him. Do you think they would, or should even, try to develop him as a catcher for a while before transitioning or just immediately transition him off a catcher, kind of like uh, keep it as an option while working him in at other places. How do you think they should handle that? I
0: mean, if that were no, to happen. I mean, there's no harm in keeping him behind the plate, but you have to look for at least a certain amount of time, but you have to look further down the line of where his ultimate role would be if both he and Rutschman are on the team. Like you're not drafting him to be trade bait or anything like that. You're drafting him to be a part of the organization. So like if he's catching two, three days a week, you know, maybe he's catching more in his first year as he's transitioning to the professional lifestyle, all of that sort of thing. But Long term, you know, starting in an in instructional league this fall, you get him out on the infield dirt because um, that's where you have a little, at least a little bit more value. If you think he can play on the infield dirt, that's where you get him out there in October, November, and um, from there, you know, maybe he's catching two days a week, you know, just to keep his hand in there and all that sort of thing, because you know that sort of positional flexibility does have value, and to completely remove that from um, from his equation would be a disservice to him, I think, in that way.
1: So we're going to go listen to a question here that we got from the message board over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, and this comes from 2035. Some what-if questions. If Leiter happens to be there at five, would Baltimore take him or pass? Let's assume the top four are Lawler, Mayer, Davis, and Watson. Let's now assume the top four are the same three shortstops in Leiter instead of Davis would the O's take Davis? And then the last part of this question is, in what order do you think the O's ranked the four prep shortstops and, and are all in play for them at five?
0: Okay, so first off, uh, with the lighter going at four and Davis is sitting there at five, do they take Davis? As I said, I, I don't think so. I still think, uh, I still think there's value there that's, uh, that surpasses Davis on that one. Uh, even if you go the underslot route and all that, I think there are better options there. So setting that one aside, if Leiter is there at five, that could get interesting. Cause you know, as of right now, as I said, I have Lighter as my number two draft score on the board. Um, he has put up an incredible season. There are, there are some slight question marks, like he has a higher walk rate than you'd really like to see. Uh, he's given up more home runs than you'd really like to see. So would they take him at five? I think at that point it's going to it would really all come down to do you have to pay him like the number 2 guy or pay him like the number 3 guy. You know, finances are you know th- this whole process is far from independent of finances. And so I think can you get away with paying him first off like the number 5 guy? Cuz I mean he could play the hard line and say I want to get paid like the number three pick where I thought I was going to be at which point I don't think they would overpay for him. I don't think they would go that route, but if he was willing to, you know, if he was willing to play at the, at the five slot and, and, you know, even take a little bit less, that's a tough one. Cause at that point you still have available Brady house and I have Brady house coming in at number six. So there's a pretty there's a pretty hefty difference, I will admit, between their scores. About 10 runs worth, which is a lot. I mean, it, it's the difference between, um, let's see. It's like the equivalent of getting an extra number 30 pick basically in the draft and in back of the first round pick in terms of value. So mm, that's a real tough one because Elias has sh- shown that he's more willing to wait on pitchers. I, don't, I really can't answer that because that's a... That's a lot, in my view. It's a lot of value to turn down. I think, again, assuming he's willing to uh, take the number five slot, I think I would pull that trigger. But I don't know if Elias would necessarily. So, it, it that question really all comes down to money, and that's something that we can't necessarily, unfortunately, know. Mm-hmm. And then let's see. The last one was uh, ranking the four prep shortstops from the Orioles' perspective. I believe on that one. Yes. Uh, let, let's do see. We wanna,
3: do we want to do that, or do we want to come back to that one?
0: I I can take it now or later either either way. (laughs) We can go ahead and do it now. Let's talk about these guys now. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're they're the top guys, and they're probably going to be the guys that we're talking about in 13 days. So I would – you could go back and forth on uh, Mayor or Lawler. Me personally, I have Mayor at one, Lawler at two, and then – I have Watson in house only because I don't know if House is really a shortstop. Like I think he's going to be able to play sufficient shortstop, but I don't know if he's going to stick there long term. There are a lot of people that think he can. If I was sure that he was going to, I would probably put him above Watson. But because there's that question, eh, I would knock him down. A, uh, I would knock him down just a peg on that one. Are they available at five? Lawler and mayor? I don't think there's any way. I don't think they're in any way, shape, or form making it to the Orioles at five. And if they were they would be well within their rights to command a number one or number two bonus. And again, I don't think the Orioles are paying up on that one. Watson definitely has a chance. It's, I think it's going to come down to Detroit again. And I would love to see Watson fall there. Um, I have Watson, I believe he's number five on mine. Uh, Oh, excuse me. Number four, Kumar rockers, number five. Um, Yeah. Watson's number four. And I would love to see him uh, with the Orioles. And even better, you could maybe even get away with paying him a little bit, you know, not much, a little bit under slot since he's ranked uh sixth by baseball America at that point. It is six, right? It is six. Okay, yeah. So you might be able to get him to take just a tick less, you know, even a couple hundred thousand that you could put it put to uh later round picks or something like that. House absolutely in play, no question. Um, Tigers are another one that could be interested in him, but you know, if the Tigers take him, then Watson's available, and I'm perfectly fine with that. So you know, mayor and Lawler out of play there. There's no way Watson and house absolutely in play and should be given very careful consideration. The Orioles do seem to like them. Elias has been at their games, been present there and there there's been a lot of buzz connecting the Orioles to those two guys. So it'll be interesting to see where that kind of goes.
3: I, I want to, since we're talking about those guys real quick, I just want to, can you expand on Watson as a player a little bit more? Like what you see out of him, what he brings to the table, what he projects as I was reading a little bit about him today because the high school guys, like, I, I'm relying on you and your appearances are to show for this information. Uh, but Watson does seem like a guy that I quickly fell in love with just reading reports and watching some videos. I like his flash on the field. I like his personality. He's not afraid to show. If you listen to this show, you know I love those types of guys. Um, but there seemed to be, like, is it more. What I was reading was, is it more power tool over a hit tool type deal? Is his size an issue? He seems like a smaller frame guy, but a lot of people don't seem concerned about this issue. So I guess, can you just talk about who this Watson guy is?
0: What kind of player is he? He's an interesting guy because he is, yes, a little, you know, comparative, he's five foot nine, but he's not, you know, skinny or anything like that. What he really brings is fast hands, real, real good hands. I mean, I'm not sure what type of grade I would put on the hands. I haven't seen like quite enough of video of good video to really good a gauge on it. But, you know, when you think about guys with fast hands, you think guys like Javi Baez and that's, you know, that's the type of guy that you could dream on a little bit in that sort of way um, in terms of that sort of power. Cause Watson is able to, even though he's a little guy, he's able to turn those real fast hands into, I mean, you know, guys are putting, um, you know, with a five foot nine guy, you would not expect 55 uh, great power or anything like that you would expect much less and you know 55 doesn't sound like all that great shakes but again when it comes in a uh, package that size that's you know that's not bad there and the hip tool you know it works well enough there there's some debate is it you know average is it plus is it you know half plus sort of thing but in any of it it works well enough that the power in game can play he's a great athlete he's able to run some guys have seen apparently like 70 great times off of him now there's some worry like you know Can he stick at shortstop? Does he move to second base or center field to me? I mean, heck if he moves to center field, I'm fine with that. That's still a premium position, but I, from what little bit I've seen of his infield work. And again, it's minimal video. It looks like he has the tools to stick. I don't think he'll, I think he has enough arm to stick at shortstop. And so again, it's not 70 grade power. It's not Brady house power or anything like that, but it's a better hit tool than, than Brady house. And, um, it's a guy that I think could play. It's a guy that I think could do good things, even in that kind of small package that he is indeed.
3: I saw the Jazz Chisholm comp. Sorry. I saw the Jazz Chisholm comp and I got excited.
0: Yeah, no, that's (laughs) not a bad one either. Yeah.
1: So kind of pivoting back uh, for a minute to (coughs) pickers, and we've talked a little bit how it seems unlikely that Jack Leiter is going to go fall to number five, but it's looking more likely that Kumar Rocker could be available at that spot. We've heard about some of the concerns with Rocker this spring. If he does fall to number five, what reservations are surrounding him that may make the Orioles or any other team pass on him?
0: Okay. Yeah. So Rocker has been, of course, in the discussion the whole year came in ranked number one, whole deal. The best comparison or not comparison, the best um, summary I've heard of this is that there's basically two Kumar Rockers. One of them sits at 90 who's one of them's uh, fastball sits at 94 to 96 can top out at 99 and has a possibly like double plus slider sort of thing. That's a top three pick. That's, you know, at worst a top five pick. Then you have the other guy that sits 91 to 93 tops at 96. um, Still a plus slider, but we're not talking double plus. We're talking like a 60 slider or something like that. That guy is a first round pick, not top five, but still a first round pick. So, The problem is you got to pay him like the top five pick if you're taking him pretty much. You know, maybe if he falls to seven, which, you know, we've seen in several mocks, maybe you're able to get him at seven. But that's going to still be a tough ask um, given where he started the year and the fact that, like, you know, he has a near – untouchable statistical profile he has a better walk rate when it comes down to it than jack Leiter, and jack Leiter is supposed to be the one with the you know better control commander at least that's the kind of initial thought that people were thinking when you know when it came into the year kumar rocker has you know better in that regard you know he's had he's had a big college world series he will be going uh 24 hours from now i guess uh, the uh the vanderbilt mississippi state game uh, should be just starting right now actually and um He'll he'll be going in game two. Lighter's going tonight, and if he puts in a big clutch performance against Mississippi State tomorrow, that could pump him up a little bit, possibly. But just the questions are going to come down to which rocker do you get? You know, sometimes if you're really looking at him, sometimes it looks like the delivery might have a little bit of effort in it, which, you know, can bring fears of a reliever sort of uh, profile or anything like that. He's going to start. He's going to have one of the longest leases we've seen in a long time to be a starter. But those are the things that are going to cause teams to pause at, especially in the top five. When you start getting into the, you know, seven, eight range, that's when you can start being comfortable with, okay, do I take the bet that he's the top three guy or just merely a, merely a first round pick with the potential uh, that's back there that he has flashed many times over the course of his Vanderbilt career.
3: On lighter real quick. You've been there working with the Rays. You've been at these games, talked to these scouts. Um, Lighter's game, his last outing when he went what 120 something pitches that last outing Um I'm just curious, are teams watching that and, like, freaking out, pounding their head on the table when they saw him go back out there for, I think, the eighth inning?
0: I can guarantee you they're not necessarily thrilled. I mean, he's probably not going to pitch this year, i bet, after, you know, he's probably going to get signed. Maybe we'll throw an inning or two, but, like, you know, how many innings is he up to this year? Uh, he's got to be over 100 by now. Let's see. But regardless, like, no matter how many innings he's had, it's a big ramp up from last year. It's a big change from last year. Yeah, he's uh, should have just topped 100, in, or he's going to top 100 innings tonight if he hasn't. Um, but again, he's probably not going to pitch this year because teams are just going to be real, real careful with him. So even even with these longer outings, you know, it's not great. But given the longer term view, it's assuming that things don't go awry tonight. Of course, it's probably not the worst thing in the world. I mean, tonight's going to be his last college start, so yeah. we'll just see what happens from there. But I don't, I don't think teams are. Just absolutely killing themselves about this.
3: I just, that was a fun conversation to watch unfold on social media. Um, but with Rocker, yeah, it, it seems like it's—I don't know—maybe just a lot of prospect fatigue. I've heard people talk about that. It's you know, Rocker's been the presumed one-one for like what two years now, so it's like, all right, we we want to see him. Um, it's this prospect fatigue setting in. But I, I heard a good point, and I'll credit the guys over at Prospects Live were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago. When they're talking about bringing the Orioles and bringing Kumar Rocker in to see what the Orioles have done with Grayson Rodriguez and Deal Hall and Kyle Bradish even this year, uh, I guess, like, for, for anybody who wants to comment on this, like, if the Orioles brought in a Kumar Rocker-type pitcher, like, what could they do with him? And, and how, are you, how are we going to be able to sell this to the fans that the Orioles pass up on a guy like Kumar Rocker if he's
0: there? I mean <laughs> – they have done incredibly wonderful development work and you all know better than me on this one because this is that's what you all look at you've seen the results of this and no question they could do this but with the draft it's all going to be a question of value the whole enterprise is a question of value and is there a better value you know rocker is as again number 5 on my uh, rankings he has a score of let's see 26.97 just 28 which basically is you know the way the score basically is that's the expected number of runs above replacement. So you're looking at like a two and a half, three win player on average when you're looking at uh, him, depending on how the runs above replacement wind out over the years and all that. But that's what you're looking at when you're drafting him. But is there going to be a better value? Is there a higher ceiling? You know, Khalil Watson's right ahead of him at a score of uh, just a little bit above 28. And But the thing is, Watson is younger and has a higher ceiling. Um, from a score perspective. Watson has a ceiling of a, you know, you know Rocker, I think if I remember correctly on these scores, because I looked this up because I was thinking about this recently, Rocker has a ceiling from the score perspective of like a five-win guy. Watson has a ceiling of like a seven-win guy. And it's all a question of value. And so is Rocker the right value at that point? Is Watson the right value? Because again, pitchers are inherently more risky and inherently Less from a pure wins above replacement level, less valuable. So, can you? I I would give the Orioles' development team a better chance to turn a a different pitcher to turn a fourth rounder into a five win pitcher than a fourth round shortstop or a fifth round shortstop into a seven win type of uh, Khalil Watson's possible ceiling.
1: So. There is one follow-up question I have on Kumar Rocker. The example that I keep going back to is the year that Mark Appel was expected to go number one, but the Mm -hmm. Astros took Carlos Correa, Appel falls to the Pirates, decides I'm not signing bets on himself, and for him, it paid off in the sense that he was the number one pick the following year. You've talked a lot tonight about the bonuses and whether or not you're going to have to pay up. If you're the Orioles and you think Kumar Rocker might bet on himself – and we have to go over slot at number five to get him. Do you draft him? And would Rocker take that path? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Again, it everything is so much in
0: context. It depends on who you're pitting Rocker up against. If you were pitting him up against Jack Leiter, who was willing to sign for the same money, you'd probably take Leiter at that point. Com- just comparing the two, I don't know if the Orioles would go that route. Again, pitchers are- pitchers have a lot of questions, but you know that that is the bet. You know, are they I say are the players that are there? You know, if they go back, are they going to become those number one guys? Same thing with high schoolers, for that matter. Um, so I remember with the Rays, twenty seventeen, um, we drafted Brendan McKay at number four. We went back and looked at some of the high school reports. They had them as like a, uh, I'm trying to remember it. So our system had guys at like 1A, 1B, 2, 3, 4, 5, where 1A, 1B were the highest. Um, the Brendan McKay high school report was like a three. And at the end, you know, when he was coming up there, he was a 1A. And we joking like, see, this is what those this is what those three high schoolers can turn into in three years sort of thing. So it is a bet. So you could ask the exact same question of, you know, Khalil Watson or someone like that. If you pass on him, if you, if you draft him and kind of undersell him on the slot, you know, and he goes to, he's going to NC, he's signed by NC state. If he went to NC state for three years, don't think it's going to happen. But if he did, what's it going to look like in three years? What's the possibilities there? So that is admittedly the bet. Again, I don't think the Orioles would take that risk on rocker it would really though all i think that one's going to come down to information that i don't have in my model particularly the pitch fx information because you know they have it and you know they have studied it to no end on rocker and that's you know they've they've seen his down days uh, the days when he's pitching 91 to 93 and they've seen the spin rates on those if the spin rates are fine if they think it's a blip if they've checked out the medicals and all that maybe they consider it but again i I don't, I don't think I see it. it. It would be a surprise to me if they went that route.
2: Switching gears a bit, um, just from reading Twitter and Orioles fans all over the place, it seems like most of them want either lighter or Rocker, one of those Vandy arms, or a high school shortstop. You know, that's the exciting picks. And some are even warming up to Colton Kowser, including Eric Birdland, who took him in the Prospects Live mock draft and then got a nice uh, steal in the second round with James Woods shout out but uh what about Sal Relic as an option you last time you were on you mentioned seemed like his uh trend was going in the wrong direction but uh how did he finish the season and you think there's any reason to keep an eye on him as a fifth pick so yeah it seemed
0: like right as you know right as we were talking he had started kind of arresting that downplay he got off to a real hot start went through a little slow stretch and then from literally the podcast last podcast that I was on to the end of the season, he batted his season line. He just basically stayed constant. So the last, uh, unfortunately for him, his season ended early um, because Boston College did not have a great year. But his uh, last uh, end of the season line, basically, from podcast on was a uh, 352, 434, 521. So there are tools there. There are tools that definitely can play. Like he is a 60 center fielder, 60 speed, 60 bat type of guy. He uh, walks about the same rate as striking out. We're talking about 12% this year, something like that. But there are some questions. And this is the big one for me. And namely, the power isn't there. We're talking like 40, maybe 45 grade power. Now, yes, it's possible that he adds some there. But the thing is, he he seems to be at his physical maturity level sort of thing right now. He's, well, for a comparison, he's, the, he's 5'9", 175, and Khalil Watson is pretty much the same size. And Watson's grading out at 55 power for grading out at 40 power, you know, 40, 45, depending on who you look at, of course. So the lack of power for me is a bit of, con- of a concern, especially at that low of a rate. So there are tools there that you could absolutely see him picked at five. And if he'd, if he does, he better sign for a, you know, better t- take a major cut there. Um, it better be for a big, big underslot signing. Me, I still think there are better underslot options if you're going to go that route with him. But I I can see why. I truly can see why. But for me personally, there's enough questions with the lack of power that I'd, I think there's just going to be a lack of value there longer term just due to that at this point, especially once he switches
1: to uh, Woodbat. So looking at the other outfielder that has been mentioned a lot as a possible under-slot pick is Colt Couser. Can you talk about what kind of player he is, what put him into position to be an early first-round draft pick, and what kind of player he projects to become the next level?
0: Yeah, so I've liked Colton Couser for a little while. Let me check my notes here. I mean, basically the main reason why he's up this high is he has hit. He has always hit. He has been a hitter, even when you start talking about the conference that he plays in. He has just always been a hitter. So, um, I mean, honestly, if he put up like 80, 90 percent of the production that he put up at Sam Houston and he did this in the ACC or in the SEC, he'd be a top five pick. He would be just teams would be loving to try to get him in their organization. So what we're looking at with him, you know, this year now, granted, yes, small conference, all those questions that come into there. But we're looking at a slash line of like 374 uh 490 680 so we're looking at about 300 iso give or take so has power to play with walks more than he strikes out walked 17 percent of the time stole 17 bases which is a for him an 85 percent success rate even more he's played for team usa back in 2019 i believe and had good wood bat performance and the thing is like he's consistently been able to catch up to fastballs when he's faced uh you know, harder velocity, all that. So the fact that he's able to catch up to those fastballs, really able to turn, doesn't swing and miss at them, really is kind of allaying those concerns about the small conference sort of background that he has. So, and from, you know, from a body sort of perspective, so we're looking at like 6'3", 195, a little on the skinnier side, you know, skinnier in terms of if you're looking at BMI, skinnier than Sal Frelick has a better power sort of potential, even though he is, you know, skinnier, quote unquote. So you have a couple of options. You know, if he stays more on the skinny side, he absolutely can has the tools to stick in center field. If he bulks up a little bit more, you would expect more power is going to come with that. And yeah, you move him out to left field, but it's a, or left field or right field, but he has a solid enough arm that could work with. But, you know, just as he is, we're looking at a left-handed bat that has a good chance to stick in center field, that has pop, that has speed. All of those are things that really you can build on. And the one question you have to ask is, is it all a small conference, you know, mid-major illusion, illusion? But even some of the things behind that have made uh, evaluators say, say that, yeah, I'd be willing to bet on that profile. Honestly, if you're going at an underslot, slot, he's the guy that I really like at that. Because, I mean, Baseball America has him at number 11, which if the Orioles paid him at the 11th slot, that's a million and a half, I believe, in savings. And you could spread that around. And with with what you're getting at that point. So let's see, I have him ranked. Let's see. He is 13th in my model rankings at uh, six, about 16. He's, he's back behind a few pitchers. Um, There are a lot of good college performers who've seen their stock rise, but again, at that uh, point in time, that's a value that I'd be willing to take an underslot bet on to, you know, give to the development team and see if they can really tap into that power that he seems to
1: have. So we had a question on Twitter and this is more about players in general and not specific to Colton Cowser. For college players, how much and which conference and which conference they've played in factors into a team's evaluation.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely comes into play. You know, certain teams, certain organizations are going to lean more heavily on the big conference guys. Teams are going to like, okay yes, this guy has faced SEC pitching, which is no question, you know, the best conference in college baseball. The fact that no matter who wins the College World Series this year, seven of the last 11 champions have come from the SEC tells you enough right there. So there are teams that are going to love that. The other kind of it's not a bias exactly, but the other benefit that those players have is the fact that big conference guys are going to see a lot of time in front of track man. So you're going to know the exit velocities. You're going to know what they have there. You're going to see the spin rates on those guys. You're going to see what they really have. And those those things don't have a conference effect. Those things don't come to play. So the fact that large conferences have that, there's going to be a bias towards those guys because of that extra information. Again, how much it is, is hard to say. I include conference effects in my model. So I include, I calculate and include a strength of schedule component in some portions of the model, I believe uh, probably the most uh, influential one actually is secondary strength of schedule. So the win percentage of the, the win percentage of the win percentage, uh, I forget, but uh, look up secondary strength of schedule. I forget the exact description for it, but basically how your opponent's opponents did. Mm-hmm. And that has some, some predictive effect where guys who played a better secondary strength of schedule, i.e. a stronger conference, more or less tend to wind up doing a little bit better in the longer run. Not not a huge effect, but a little effect.
3: I like that. I'm, I'm kind of sold on Colton Cowser if that's the big as well. Um, I'd also heard that, I think it was, I can't remember where I was listening to to this to, to give him the proper credit, but I guess it was on fastballs 97 and up, Cowser was the number one hitter in the country at the highest averagings. Yeah. Um, we had Eric Longenhagen on. A lot of guys that we seemed kind of excited about, his first comment was like, well, yeah, they can't hit high fastballs. Um, right. So, you know, that's...
0: Now, admittedly, it's going to be interesting you know, to take this to the major league side of things, you know, with the whole crackdown on the sticky stuff and all that sort of thing. How players are evaluated in the draft is going to probably change at least a little bit. It might take a little longer, but there's going to be probably repercussions, not only at the major league level that everyone's talking about, but also in the amateur realm as well, not only in terms of the literal player performance themselves, but how they're evaluated. So maybe that's less important later on because... You know, high fastballs aren't as devastating as they used to be, but it's still something that I would, you know, given all the options, I'd still like to see that out of a player because, you know, it's going to take a while for that to come out of the game if it does at all. Yeah.
3: So talking big picture strategy in here with the Orioles um, and Michael Elias, is there enough evidence that Michael Elias will definitely go underslot like a lot of Orioles fans seem to think? Uh, if he does, do you think this is a bad thing in this year's draft? Uh, there seems to be a lot of negativity in Birdland right now at the major league level, and that seems to be drifting into the rest of the organization as a whole, which you know seems kind of unjustified starting a bit of a civil war on social media.
0: But um, yeah, big picture strategy there. So as I said earlier, I don't think there's enough evidence to say that he's definitely doing it. I think there was a, there's a, might be a little bit of overestimation of that. I, I definitely think it could happen but i think there's a little overestimation of that because the you know everyone got burned a little bit last year everyone was not necessarily expecting that so because everyone missed on that i think they're upping the chances of it a little bit i kind of see a bit of a drop after the first uh, 6 7 guys really um yeah really after brady house i start seeing a little bit of a drop there so unless you're really going to you know go for the underslot I don't necessarily see. Well, there, there are so many different routes that they could go. But again, I don't think it's a guaranteed thing because, like, you look at everyone wants to cite the Carlos Correa pick. Everyone loves citing that, and yes, it was under slot, all that sort of thing. But the thing is, prices are set externally. Prices are set by what everyone else is willing to pay and by you know external uh, factors. Best player is an internal thing, and the high school shortstop is one of the best demographics, no question. So in front of Correa that year, you had Mike Zanino, college catchers, they do all right. Four college pitchers, pitchers are variable. You could have actually, I could easily see an argument where, yes, Byron Buxton's number one, but Carlos is number two and not off by that much. And you'll even look at, you know, some of Elias's, uh, the, some of Houston's picks. After that, the uh, Mark Appel, the Brady Aiken picks, all of those guys were best available. Alex Bregman, you picked him at five, I mean, or wait a minute. They pick him at five or eight. Well, he was the I say he was a he was a top guy regardless. And again, with shortstops, you absolutely have a lot of value there. He has a history of taking the best players available, as well as occasionally going under slot or what would seem to be a uh, under slot option. But again, you have to always remember that those are external things. And as the negativity goes, you know, try to keep the negativity to the major league roster. Like, it, yes, it's. Not fun sitting through what we see every single day in, day out. It's not fun. But the development system is going well. Yes, you can be mad about the incentivization of tanking and the like and all that sort of thing. But, you know, direct that to Major League Baseball, who has such a system in place. And hopefully the next CBA will take measures on that. You know, try to keep the negativity focused on where it's going to be, namely the yes major league team to a certain extent and to major league baseball for essentially enabling the practice but this is the time for hope for having a positive outlook because there are a lot of great options in this draft and the development systems doing their job if you want to try to look at the silver lining of all the losses up you know next year's number one pick Elijah Green I mean he he's being touted as the best got the best prospect since Bryce Harper you know wouldn't you like to have that sort of? And he's a high schooler. Wouldn't you la- like to have a shot at that? I mean, you know, yes, it sucks, but you know, keep the negativity focused on where it deserves to be.
2: All I know is Arizona needs to start winning ballgames. All right, uh, Amen. <laughs> on to another underslot option, which we have seen mocked in some places to the Orioles. Uh, Harry Ford, another catcher, this time a high schooler. He has a profile that isn't very common with prospects. It's a high school catcher who many people think can stick a catcher, but he's also athletic enough to move around to other positions and have success. So kind of similar to the, um, the uh, Henry Davis discussion. What if the Orioles were to go under slot and take him there, what would be the game plan? Do you think with a guy like that?
0: Okay. So, the athletic catcher is a really interesting demographic, especially the athletic catcher who can play, you know, outright premium positions, possibly. And there, there is some history of this, like Dalton Varshow Connor Wong in 2017, uh, Dylan Dingler last year from Ohio State spent time in center field in his first couple of years, Will Smith back in 2016. But... The thing is, the high school catchers is a real tough demographic if you look back at it uh, historically. So since 2009, which is where I start training my model, there have been 17 high school catchers drafted in the first round. Five have made the majors. They've combined for 416 uh, at-bats with 1.5 career wins above replacement across all of them. That's pretty rough. Now, that's not to say Ford isn't necessarily an option. Now, if he's drafted... You can take the, you know, send him off of a catcher to another position if you see him as a center field type of guy because he he apparently is a true uh, 60 runner sort of thing. He's not, you know, clogging up the bases or anything like that. But if you draft him at catcher, it would be a slow development at catcher. Apparently, you know, he's a little rough around the edges and most high school catchers generally are. It's very rare that you see a very advanced high school catcher, it seems, uh, from a defensive and pitch handling and staff handling point of uh, view. So it would be a slow catch development and it would be, he might be, it's hard to say where it's like center field development would be. You could say that it's easier to pick up than catcher that I'm sure there are uh, career outfielders who would say differently, but let's give catcher its due. It's the hardest position on the diamond to really grasp. So you would have to assume that his development would be a little bit faster. So his score right now, where I have him is at uh, 13.3, which is 17th overall. It's not necessarily a risk that I would want to take at five. That said, if you go underslot with him at Colton with Colton Cowser at five, he could be someone that you might try to overslot and you know kind of pay down at uh, forty-one, maybe because that one and a half million very conveniently takes that uh, forty-one up to around. Well, it depends on again how much of a haircut you can get the guy to take. Let's see. Uh, Yeah, let's see. One and a half uh, million would get him up to, yeah, around slot 15 to 19, which is right about where he's ranked in Baseball America. So he could be an overslot guy. I'd I'd feel much more confident, much more comfortable with him as an overslot guy than as the underslot option at five, me personally.
1: So it's, um, you know, Ford is a name to consider, I guess, for this next question, which is if the Orioles go under slot at number five, who would be available for them and their overslot bonuses? Um, they have four of the first 76 picks, including 5, 41, 65, and 76.
0: Okay, so breaking this out at 41, yes. Ford's right So right on the cusp of the, you know, one and a half million, assuming, again, assuming Kowser takes, assuming you pay the guy the 11th slot, if it's Kowser or anyone else, assuming the guy takes the 11th slot, that's one and a half million, give or take and at that point Ford is right on the edge of making that possible from 41 uh really anything between like slots uh 15 to 19 any guy in that area that's the slot that you'd be looking at paying a guy for if you upped 41's bonus by one and a half or so million so Ford's there Joe Max another high school catcher although they think he's at catcher and stay much more likely to stay at catcher so he's a little less likely uh Bubba Chandler could be interesting Bubba Chandler uh two-way player he'd be the uh, number 21 ranked guy as a shortstop number 22 guy as a pitcher so um he's actually a four-star qb and is uh, signed by clemson right now so you'd have to overpay you well not overpay you'd have to definitely pay him you couldn't pay him 41 money you'd have to pay him to make him an option possibly so he's a guy that could be interesting if you want to go the college route because really if you're overslotting a guy it's high schoolers or college age eligible sophomore type of guys or really big talent types. So uh, if you're willing to take the risk, uh, Gunnar Hogland could be a guy. He was looking like a top five guy before he, tore his, uh, before he tore his UCL. Right now, Baseball America has him ranked 18. My draft model doesn't care that he tore his UCL, um, only to the effect that he lost some innings and opportunity to throw. But, my draft model has him his score at number ten. If he, you know, hadn't uh, tore his ACL and it, the season had just stopped there, he'd be the number ten guy. So, if you're willing to take the risk, you know, take a look at the medicals, do the due diligence. He could be a guy that could be overslotted and you know, gotten for number 21, 22 sort of money. And even then, you'd have a little bit of opportunity as you go further on down. There, there are a bunch of other guys that you could dream on. I mean, uh, let's see, Will Taylor actually is another Clemson football uh, recruit uh, who's ranked 26, who, do you, who you'd have to pay. You could, um, you could get him at a 41 or maybe even 65, depending on how much you pay up. Uh, if you want to go high school pitchers, if you really in that, have that sort of appetite for risk. Uh, Chase Petty threw 102 miles an hour in a bullpen this year. Uh, <laughs> he's a guy that you could maybe try to um, price down to 41 or 65. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. Frank Mazzucato is another guy who's had a big uh, jump up over the year. You could maybe play him down to 65 if you're willing to pay up a bit. Uh, let's see. College guys. Uh, Troy Melton had a decent year out in the West Coast. Um, he He's a, a lot lower ranked, but um, he's been a performer. So you might be able to get him for even underslotting at later picks if you had to. If they did the uh, thing that I very much un- not expect and, you know, sign rocker for uh, a little bit extra of a bump of money. Uh, Troy Melton could be a guy, from, you know, essentially the reverse of this, save a little bit of money later on, who's a performer and has some opportunities there. So again, there are definitely options there. And there are some exciting ones. I mean, I'd be really excited about Gunnar Hogland. I'd be excited about Harry Ford as the underslat guy, Chase Petty, Matsukata, all those guys. I would be excited for them to be the underslat guy uh, depending on who the overslot guy is, there are, I have some opinions on. or not the overslot, um, the underslot uh, payoff. I guess you could say. Depending on who they sign at five, I have some opinions there. Um, but it, it, there's enough interest in that back end that if they go underslot, it's it's not a waving of the white flag or anything like that.
1: So let's backtrack. What are your opinions there, Fred? Uh, number five. I really love Khalil Watson and Brady House. I I really
0: want. I like the ceiling that those guys bring. I think I like uh, Watson better than house just, just by a tick, just by a tick. Those are the guys that I would really like to see going at that point. If they're just determined to go the underslot and say, get one of these really high value guys. I want to see cows be the guy like, there's a lot of discussion that it would be frelic. Like I see it. I understand. I'm just worried about the lack of power. Matt McLean. His score is horrible, I will say, but he's a guy that I think exceeds his score. He had a real rough first year, but um, there, there are enough tools there, and he does play a premium position, all that sort of thing. But just all that said, I, I really like Watson and House. I really want to see those guys in the organization and really, you know, I mean, we've seen Gunnar Henderson rise up so much in the last couple of years uh, from where he started to where he is now, you know, just just inside, you know, the, the top hundreds and has the chance to rise even further. While that's great and all, Watson has a better floor, I think. Watson and House both have a better floor and a better ceiling. I think they can be a lot. And I really want to see what the player development could do with those guys. Again, if they go under slot, I want Colton Kowser. I'll be perfectly honest about that. He's the guy that I want. I want to take a bet on that that, you know, 97 mile an hour and higher fastballs that he's turning around on those. Like, I don't care if it's a small conference. He's the guy I want on the underslot. Nice.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious just in general if Orioles fans are, you know, getting kind of burned on the Kirstad pick for right now. And, you know, of course, we hope he's healthy and can get back on the field. But And then it seemed like, I don't know if this ever came out or if it was just rumor that Nick Bitsko was the guy that they were targeting, why they went so underslot, and Tampa Bay swiped him of. Uh, away from the Orioles. So I'm wondering if Orioles fans are now, if they see a South Freilich, um, is the roof going to collapse on uh, among Orioles fans um, at that I mean, point?
0: Again, like there are tools there. A 60 hit tool is nothing to sneeze at. A 60 hit tool, 60 speed, 60 field. That is solid. I just think there is more that I just worry about the power. You know, so much of the league is true. Like your hit tool can be wonderful, but... You can say defensive positioning. You can cut down on hits. It's harder to argue with a little bit extra power on that end of things. So again, like, yes, I do think there are better options, but Frelick still nothing to sneeze at. He would be a good guy. And again, it's all about value. If Frelick signed for 3 million under slot and it's spread across guys all throughout those next three picks, Hey, I'm not going to argue with that. Everything has to be taken in terms of context in that way. So you know, don't let, I say, let things develop as they will, as the draft goes on, you know, don't evaluate the number five pick until we've seen at least through 76.
3: So I think we're going to answer this next question on, on the timeline about ranking the top four prep shortstops from the Orioles perspective. Um, but is there anyone outside of those four that could be a surprise pick in this range?
0: In the like top six sort of range? Yeah. So- Ooh. Jackson Job could move up a little bit. Like he he's eight. Like it's not that big of a jump. But like there there are people who again like it's the whole thing of well this is what the the lower ranked high schoolers you know he's in number eight right now in three years he could be the number one pick and you get on that on you know on the relative ground floor sort of thing. So there there is thoughts that he could be when it's all said and done the best for best you know uh, the uh, pitch. When it comes down to pitch for pitch, the best guy out of the whole – best pitcher out of the whole draft, there is thoughts of that. So he could jump up there. Any other guys that jump into that top six range I think are more there for the, for the financial concerns than anything else. Job is the guy that I think could jump into those top six picks and it be truly a, I think this talent is just that high, is just that highly ranked and that ceiling is high enough that he makes me want to make that jump. Anyone else, it's a little bit more, in my opinion, of a stretch, um, just due to the question marks that exist. Again, Self Relic would be that guy, but I think there's going to be questions about the power and all of that thing. Maybe the exit velocities are better than are are better than the numbers underlying numbers suggest. Like with a one seventy ISO, you would not expect an average ninety five mile an hour exit velocity. You would not expect that at all, even with aluminum bats. But maybe they're better that teams are willing to take that bet. But really, it's just Job that I think could uh, jump in there.
2: All right. Well, how about a late round sleeper? Maybe outside of the top five rounds or so. Any of those guys that fit the Michael Elias mold of that power bat, uh, with maybe not quite the uh, strike zone avoidance as you would usually expect, or maybe like a fastball curveball type of pitcher who the, he thinks he can mold into the next Kumar Rocker.
0: So there are there are more pitchers I think than there are hitters in terms of that sort of range right now. Um, a lot of those guys that are those big power bats, think like Nico Cavadas, sort of thing out of Notre Dame. He's an older guy, like he's going to turn, uh, he's t- going to be 21.7 on draft day, which is usually a senior's age, which that's going to knock, anal- from an analytical perspective, that's going to knock his score back. There's no way around it. But there there are, there are a few guys, uh, let's see. So Justin Henry Malloy, this isn't the Elias mold, but he's a guy, so he's an infield guy, second base, third base, a lot of walks, above average raw that hasn't really fully tapped into yet. So he's ranked uh, 241 by Baseball America. That's about where my model has him as well. But there, there's some room that could be growing there. And also, again, for that sort of thing, if you're going to get a guy who might have a little bit extra pop in there or something like that, I want him playing something other than corner, outfield, or first base. And the fact that he's a possible second base, third base guy, that has some value there. Uh, let's see. There, are, let's. Um, Braden Olthoff is a guy that could be interesting. So Baseball America has him 168. My model has him 75. He's been a performer. He has a below average fastball. Big, big stats. Strikes out guys, controls the walks. Reports are a plus slider and plus control. So maybe a little weighted ball program might uh, add a mile an hour or two on there. That could take him from being like a, uh, you know, back into the rotation to a two or three, which at that range, you know, if you're talking getting picked in the fifth, sixth round, you turn them into a two or three type of guy in a rotation, That that that's value. That's great value that you can get there. So those are the guys that I would kind of keep an eye on. There, there aren't a ton of incredibly great late sleepers that are outside of the top five rounds. There are a few guys that I like in like the fourth round range that I have a lot higher scores on because they're performers that could see a big jump. Chad Dallas is one of them uh oh who's the vanderbilt or not vanderbilt who's the alabama pitcher uh dylan smith is a a second round sort of guy that i think or that the model has based on his performance in a big conference and all that has him as a late first rounder sort of thing so there are more guys that are in the top five rounds that i think are being undervalued just because of the stats and all that than there are late sleepers outside of that but olthoff is one that's He's one that's interesting. He's one that I could see making a jump, especially given the fact that he does have a plus secondary, plus control, plus command sort of thing. Well, the command's not necessarily plus, half plus, but plus control and a below average fastball. There's something to build on there, especially with the performance.
2: That's good information. He's he's fun
3: to watch too. I remember watching one of his Mm -hmm. early starts, and I think the other opposing team was trying to get him a – check. They're trying to check his glove for some some sticky. Before, this was early in the season, and uh, it turned into uh, quite the contest. Uh, I'm sure. Pretty quickly. I I liked him a lot.
1: So, Stephen, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Who would you take? You're the Pirates now. We're going to pivot over to this number one pick. Who do you take was the number one pick, and do you expect the Pirates to actually make that pick, or do you think they're going to go in a different direction?
0: Uh, The Pirates. Hmm. I should have called it, so I have a cousin who li- cousin's husband who lives up in Pittsburgh. He's a high school baseball coach. Uh, I'd be curious his opinion. He actually, uh, he coached uh, Daniel El Tavila in high school before Al became a first-round pick and faced Brendan McKay. So he's seen good players and all that. I'd be very curious his thoughts on where he wants the Pirates to go. But if it's me, let's see. <sighs> hmm. I'm torn between, I say, even if Lighter is the number two on my board, I'm still torn between Lawler and Mayer. And I think I have Mayer above. I think... I look at the grades that people are putting on the two and Mayer has a tick more power, 55 power compared to Lawler's 50, same sort of hit tool. And they say Mayer might be the best defensive shortstop. And the thing that people are really playing on for ranking Lawler above Mayer is Lawler is a better athlete. Lawler has a 60 runtime versus Mayer's like a 45 runtime, but even with a 45 runtime and that less athleticism, people are convinced that Mayer is the best defensive shortstop in the draft. Um, and that includes college players too, or at least definitely the best high school defensive shortstop. And so I look at all that and I wonder why Lawler is ranked higher. I guess they're plan- they're they're banking on the athleticism being able to turn into a higher tool rate. But me, I would rather bet on the tools that seem to be there and the potential that seems to be there for a little bit more power for this defensive uh, ability that is clearly there and a hit tool that you know we're ranking at like a 60 grade hit tool. You know, that's right there around the plus level sort of thing. And 55 power is a great thing. And he's playing a premium position for me. I think I would lean mayor. I think he is worth the slot that he's going to command. Um, if he, if he takes two, number two money, that's even better. That'd be wonderful. But if you have to pay him like a number one pick, I think he's going to be worth it. Um, you know, that said still trying to negotiate with him, of course, like you'd be a fool not to, but do I think the pirates, I, I do think the pirates are going to go that route. If they don't, I think it's Lawler. So, I do. Th- yeah, I would lean Mayor, and I think that's who he's going to. I think that that's who Pittsburgh is going to lean towards as well.
1: So we have a listener question here, um, Simkin contributor over on YouTube. Elias has gone light on pitchers in two drafts. Do you believe this is his philosophy or the strategy he had to adopt due to the inventory in the system he was presented with? Uh, I don't necessarily think so. So when you're about ignoring 2020,
0: when you're evaluating a draft, like rounds 20 through 30, or you could even in some cases say rounds 15 or 10 through 30, are all about stocking out the minor league system in many cases. Like, you know, you take flyers, you do draft and follow guys, but you need to make sure that, you know, Delmarva can feel the team, basically. So yes, if Delmarva was stocked with uh, arms that can work and that you're willing to develop, sure maybe you're going to go light in those later rounds but looking at those top rounds yes he's gone light i think it honestly is in many cases because yeah there were a few guys there but i think it has more to do with the talent that was presented the fact that pitchers are a little more variable the fact that maybe you can get a pitcher who is serviceable in the 15th round whereas hitters it tends to fall off a little bit more you know you get a guy uh you know, starter out of a small conference in the 15th round, you convince him to drop his third pitch, focus on two pitches. Suddenly he's a credible reliever. You know, you can, there is more ways to get value out of pitchers later. So I think it has less to do with the system that he was presented with in terms of when you're looking at the top end of the draft, uh, than a, and more to do with the overarching philosophy that he has, um, Again, rather than the inventory that was there.
3: I, I have one more question then. We're we kind of end it with this, I guess, maybe. Um, you're sitting down on draft night. Put you on the spot here. You're sitting on, down on draft night. How are you hoping this board falls to the Orioles in, in your dream scenario
0: here? I'm hoping. So the top three picks, I'm fairly confident some form of mayor, Lawler, or lighter. So that aside, I'm hoping the Tigers. Take either Davis or Job. I don't. I really don't care which. I just really want Khalil Watson or Br- or Brady Howe and Brady House to both fall to the Orioles. That's how I hope it falls. I again, I want to see those two guys in the system because I want to see what those two guys can bring. I'm fine if it's Colton Cowser for the underslot. I I'm, I can be flexible with the other underslot options, but I if they win underslot, I really want to see Colton Cowser. And for the rest of the draft. I would like to see. I'd like to see pitchers who have plus secondaries, good command, good control. Maybe they need a little bit more work on the fastball. I think fastballs can be worked on a little bit more than uh, secondaries in many cases. I'd like to see an established breaking pitch, maybe the inklings of a changeup and a fastball that you know you can add a few miles an hour to. And I want to see. I want to continue to see up the middle athletes who can have the positional flexibility to move around. And I'd kind of like to see someone who can eventually be a second baseman.
2: All right. It seems like we have one last listener question here. It's from Orioles underscore tweets on Twitter. And he says, Henry Davis seems like he has great makeup. How much do teams value that at this moment in time? Do you think, is that going to make or break like is more of a tiebreaker or is it valued a little bit more than that? I'd say at
0: most, it's a tiebreaker. Like there are going to be guys that
2: there are definite
0: stop red flags stay away and it's going to vary by team there, there are going to be some some red flag guys that you just take them off the board that said d.l hall had questions going into 2017 there were a lot of questions about d.l hall going into 2017 about makeup and the like and i'm sure orioles fans are thrilled that he fell to the orioles and there was a certain level of falling and that he has developed like he has but again Makeup isn't necessarily everything. At most, it's going to be a tiebreaker. And in some cases, we have to remember, especially with high schoolers, these kids are 18. Like They're going to do some growing up, or at least hopefully they will. If there is a certain immaturity level, hopefully they will do some growing up as they're put into a professional environment and surrounded with professionals. So at most, it's a tiebreaker. But even so, as a tiebreaker, it's not the be all end all. It's And there are going to be guys that have those sort of questions that two years down the line, you're going to wonder what the heck was that about?
1: So Stephen, um, thank you so much for your insight tonight. Can you uh, give our listeners a, where they can see your work uh, outside of here? I know you're a co-host at The Warehouse and contributes to Baltimore Sports and Life. So can you tell our listeners where they can see your work? Yeah, sure. So
0: I generally update my scores. Well, they're going to get updated a bit more. Let's see. I mean. Basically, anytime Baseball America updates their rankings, so that'll probably happen at least one more time. And there are three college games left, so I'll have to update them after, the, uh, after that. But I update the scores and post them at my personal blog, Sabermetric Sandlot, where, again, that's where you can find all the latest uh, updates for my scores. In the next few days, this has been a year-long project, but I should finally have individual player pages where you can dig into, okay, the fact that... Um, Specifically, uh, let's see. Marcelo Mayer has a score of 34.42. When you break it down, that's 18 and a half runs above replacement with a replacement level of 18.8, positional level of 0.75, and a 90% chance of making the majors in, uh, in his career. You know, breaking down all of those individual components. So I should. Hopefully, fingers crossed, have those player pages up and running by the end of the week for at least like the top 100 or 200 players. If I'm lucky, maybe I'll even get the full 500 that I have scores for right now. But that's where you can find all of my updates. I occasionally will post a uh, blog post there on something. I'm in the process of working on an article about the underslot question from a more holistic view beyond the Orioles. So that should be interesting and I'm sure will be of a lot of interest to uh, Orioles fans given the uh, team's history, shall we say?
1: Well, Steven, we always appreciate your insight. So thank you again for joining us. And before we completely wrap up for the night, Bob and Nick have some uh, news about our upcoming shows. Which are going to be big ones.
2: Go ahead, Nick. You booked it. You, you go ahead. You announce it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for our 50th episode next week, we are going to have Matt blood, the director of the farm system on the podcast, uh, much like this, probably be an interview show, but hey, get your questions in now. Start thinking, because uh, if anyone has answers to the questions we have as Orioles fans, it's probably going to be that guy.
1: Well, then, Bob, uh, thank you for the work you did to put in that uh, guest booking right there, and we're really looking forward to having him on, and we really appreciate Steven's time tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week with Matt Blood, the Orioles Director of Player Development. In the meantime, you can continue continue to follow us on Twitter, at BSL on the Verse, and check out Baltimore sports where Stephen will have updates to his draft model and has a new one today. Bob has two new pieces up on the site. You should check out and Nick and I will of course be posting there and be sure to hop on the message board and join in the discussion uh, for Stephen Loftus, Nick Stevens, and Bob Phelan. This is Zach Sweden and you've been listening to on the birds.